0: You have reached a phone call from Paul. A literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com.
1: Part one of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Salman Rushdie. Hello? Hello, is this Salman Rushdie? How are you? I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you for taking my my call. Do you use the phone a lot? Um,
0: yeah, but I tend not to use the landline. Nobody uses the landline except when they're talking to you,
1: Paul. Well, you know, it's it, it's become kind of exotic, hasn't it? The phone. Yes. But I, it's it's a strange thing. We we have to arrange to make a phone call to reach somebody on a landline. When, when you when you were growing up, was it was the phone different?
0: Um, well, the phone. Well, of course, yes, because it wasn't portable, and um, uh, so you missed a lot. Of, you know, you missed a lot of calls because there weren't answering machines for a long time when I was growing up. You know, I mean, in, I mean, growing up in Bombay, I can't really remember talking on the phone. When when and when my mother talked on the phone, she shouted. Because she thought the other person was far away, and needed to needed to hear properly, so she would always shout to the top of her voice when on the phone.
1: And did do you do you remember your 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 first call?
0: Oh, no, I don't. But um,
1: but you didn't have one in Bombay.
0: Well, we had a phone. We had yeah. I mean, we had a phone, and um, and I would. I suppose we. I would sometimes talk to my friends in the neighbourhood to make appointment dates to meet, but uh, I don't remember the phone as being at all significant in my childhood. We would simply run out of doors and find each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for for me, the, the the phone, when when I was growing up, my my parents would would really want me to make the phone call short, hmm. because they grew up in a world in which. Uh, phone calls were either expensive or really why not meet the person in person rather than just be speaking to them after you, you saw them. Now we Now we resort to all kinds of other modes of communication. Yeah, the thing that was very different in those days, particularly when you have family in India and
0: Pakistan, is that when I was at school and then college, I mean, international phone calls to India and Pakistan were very hard to make. Um, you, you actually had to book the call in advance. You had to have what was called a timed call, that would where the connection would be made by an operator at a particular moment. And then you had to book the length of time. You had to book a three-minute call or a six-minute call or a nine-minute
1: Really? Really? That's so interesting. So you knew how, it's like nearly booking a shrink session. You know how long you have.
0: Uh, and, and they were, you know, they were expensive calls, and so in both directions you would have to make these these reservations to make a phone call. Um, and I remember all the time I was away from home in the in the sixties when I was at school and college that that was the way in which I talked to my family. That I would have these very brief timed calls, in which you had to try and
1: rush to say everything that needed to be said. Did you, during, during those years when you were away from, from home, as it were, did, did you write a lot? Did you write letters to your family?
0: I was a very, very bad letter writer. Actually, I now have quite a lot of the letters because my parents saved them, and so I've inherited them. And they're very intermittent, and they, they're full of apologies for not having written. All the letters begin by saying, I'm really sorry I haven't written. And then produce all kinds of fake explanations for why I haven't written about how busy I've been you know at boarding school um, or, or at university. And in many ways, also those letters were I now think my first works of fiction because I was actually very unhappy at boarding school. Uh, but I didn't want my parents to feel that because you know they had I mean my mother certainly felt very sad that I'd been sent away from home. And wished I hadn't been. And my father, I thought, was spending all this money and taking all this trouble to, you know, give me a foreign education in England. And so I would make up how happy I was. I would, I would tell them, um, absurd stories of, of sporting prowess. (laughs) 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 That I, you know, played cricket and I had scored 24 not out, had taken three catches in the slips. And actually I was useless at cricket. And never scored anything like that or did anything particularly of note on any kind of playing field but
1: so it was a work of of, i mean this is so interesting because it was a the, the the early work kind of the precursor work of of fantasy and
0: fiction completely and then really all the time that i was at at um school my parents were under the impression that i was having this really nice time and when i left school and went home to stay with them for a few months in between school and university. I confessed to them that actually I'd had four and a half of the most miserable years of my life. And they were deeply, deeply horrified and shocked. They said, why didn't you tell us? We would have pulled you out of there at once, and you could have come home and gone to school here, and etc. And I said, I didn't think it was right to tell you, because you were making this
1: huge effort to give me the best that you thought I could have. In retrospect, do you think... They were right or you were right? No, they were right. They were right. I mean, and now being in
0: the position of being the parent, you know, I I would be horrified too to think that, that my son had suppressed from me news of his misery for four and a half years. You know, uh, I would want to be able to know that and see what we could do about it.
1: And yet I'm thinking about what, what you said earlier about this was your first... Your first foray into fiction. I know,
0: but well, who knows what might. You yeah. know, there's. Uh, the, I think <laughs> the
1: what if question is always a kind of pointless question. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember when I was studying history at at Cambridge. One of the things that I was told by my uh, tutor was never ask the question what if because it's hard enough to understand what actually happened. But that story itself is so interesting, and I I, I wonder if you don't mind. Telling people again what it was that story about your your studying history yeah. and the reaction your your father had to that.
0: Oh well, my father. Well, I you know I got a what's, what's called an exhibition to Cambridge, which is a minor scholarship, um, just to, to read history. And my father was on the one hand pleased that I'd got a place at King's College, Cambridge, which had been his alma mater. Um, so he was happy about that, but he was not happy about the fact that I was studying what he considered to be something useless um, and told me that I should, when I arrived at Cambridge, that I should change, I should tell them I wanted to change my degree course and read something useful like he, he proposed economics um, and threatening not to pay my... By university fees, if I didn't do this, so so using a large financial stick to oblige me to do what he said. So I arrived at Cambridge actually quite worried about this, and I had in my first couple of days I had to have a meeting with the kind of head of the 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 fellow who was the dean of student affairs, and so on. So I went to see him, a man called Doctor Broadbent, Um, and and I said that I that my father thinks I should change subject to, to economics. And, um, and Dr. Broadbent said, yes, but what do you think? And I said, well, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't want to study economics. I've got my scholarship to study history. I'd like to study history. And he said, all right. He said, all right, leave it with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he wrote my father a brilliant letter in which he said, uh, he said, dear Mr. Rushley, uh, your son tells me that you you wish him to change his subject to economics. And I have to tell you that in the opinion of the college, your son is not qualified to read economics. Because apart from anything else, he doesn't have a math A-level, is sort of entry qualification. And he said, so if you insist that he change subject to economics, then I must ask that you withdraw him from the university in order to make room for somebody who actually is qualified to study the subjects they've come up here to study. And my father never
1: mentioned it again. Do you know if he responded? Uh, I don't know if he responded,
0: he never told me, but but Dr. Broadbent said to me, I think you'll find it's all right.
1: How extraordinary, (laughs) Uh, and how extraordinary. Of 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 him to write this kind of letter to your father, he completely understood the psychology at work.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing worse than my studying history would have been to be withdrawn from
1: from, from from Cambridge, and and it, it proved to be so inaccurate for you and 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 your life's work so far um, that the study of history was useless.
0: Yeah, well, it was very useful to me. You know, I mean, I think it was very, very formative of the kind of writer that I afterwards became, you know,
1: for whom history has been very often a gateway into the books I've written. And history and what one learns by studying history has permitted you in, in so many ways to deeply explore fantasy,
0: things you learn when you study history is that history is not a given you know it's not just simply set in something set in stone um, history is an act of interpretation and every age rewrites the history of the past in its own image in, you know in the image of the things that it cares about um, so history is an imaginative act you know and, and very often I think especially in our time history is very contested ground you know different groups have very different narratives of the same period um, so for example in the Middle East you could say that there are two historical narratives competing for the same space You know, there's a there's an Israeli and a Palestinian narrative which in a way which are both historical narratives but which have such radically different readings of history that they're just about incompatible so that idea of history is something that is Contested ground that is uh, that is fought over, argued over, is something you learn very early in the study of history, um, and that teaches you something as a, as a writer of novels about how to interpret the world you live in. That the that the things are not simply absolute. You know, reality is not simply a given. Um, it's a thing that we construct.
1: It's a um, it's a perspective.
0: Yeah, uh, and it comes. It's 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 created out of. Our own life experience, our prejudices, our knowledge, our ignorances, uh, you know what our family thought, where we live, whether we live in a city or the countryside, you know everything that we are goes into making our portrait of the times we live in, and that can be the basis of much disagreement, and we see that it is in the world as it is now
1: and 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 you you have lived it so poignantly in your in your own life. But without going into that immediately, there there is a, a, a quotation which I don't you know you know Salman that I'm a quotomaniac and I, I I I simply don't know how to speak without referring to other people because they are like signposts in my my own life. And I love to see how people react to those very quotations that I so love. Yeah. You probably know. You probably know this one of Einstein, where he says, "If you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be very intelligent, read them more fairy tales."
0: <laughs> well, I like that. I like that. Um, uh, I do think that the, the thing about fairy tale, folk tale, and mythology mm. is that mm. these things in many ways contain the collective wisdom of the human race. Uh, that, that there are these beautiful little things into which enormous amounts of moral and practical information is packed. You know, so if you take something, I mean, let's say it's not a fairy tale, but a myth. If you take, say, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, you can actually tell that story in a 100 words or less. You know it's it's a story you can tell very briefly um you know orpheus loves eurydice she dies he chases her into the underworld he tries to win her back but he makes a mistake and loses her now the point about this story is that while it's actually quite a simple tale it contains an incredible power because there is in it uh, if you like a kind of triangle between at whose points are art, love, and death. And it asks very profound questions about the relationship of those three things. So if you wanted to be optimistic, you could say that in the story of Orpheus, his art, his um, let's say his, his love for Eurydice, by the exercise of his art, which is his, his singing, which opens the gates to the underworld and allows him to go and find her, overcomes death. Or you could say, pessimistically, in the same story, that death, in spite of love, overcomes art. In spite of art, overcomes love. Um, so, very, very deep questions about the relationship between art, love, and death are being asked in this very short story. Um, and I think all fairy tales, folk tales, and myths have that power. They're like
1: compressed little bombs of meaning. You know that can, I love that. I love that sentence uh, because in a in a way the uh, bomb of meaning also means that they explode at different times in your life.
0: Yes, exactly and sometimes mean different things at different points in your life.
1: Much like much like the 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 the, the books we read at different times. Yeah, and, I mean
0: books sometimes have to you have to wait for you, you know. I mean I I I remember one of the books that I that I really had to grow up to read was, was a novel that became one of my favorite novels, Gunter Grass's novel, The Tin Drum. But I remember, I mean, I still have the tattered old paperback that I bought um, of the tin drum while I was still at Cambridge in the, in the late 60s. And I remember trying to read it and thinking, you know, this just isn't my kind of thing at all. And stopping it after about 100 pages and putting it away. And not picking it up again for maybe a decade, and, and maybe ten years later, I picked it up again, and and it you know, blew my mind, and I became one of the books that was most influential on me.
1: Did you ever get to talk to Grass about this?
0: Yes, I did. I got to meet him in the end, and and became friends with him. I met him when when Midnight's Children was published in Germany, so that would have been you know. Late eighty two or early eighty three, I can't exactly remember. Um, I was on I went the, the German publishers invited me to Germany for a book tour and I was in Hamburg. And at that time Grass was living in a little village outside Hamburg with the wonderful name of Wevelsfleet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, asked if I would like to in Wevelsfleet. Of course you did. Of course who wouldn't want to go to weaver's fleet
0: anyway so i went and uh and he he was initially quite guarded with me i mean i was he was the old master and i was the new kid on the block and and i was supposed to make my genuflections which as it happened was easy to do because i was such a great admirer of his so i so I spoke at some length about my admiration for his work, and there was a moment at which he decided that that had been enough genuflection. And then he led me over to a cabinet in which he kept—he had this beautiful collection of antique glasses. Um, I mean, no two the same. Little kind of schnapps glasses. Hmm. And he said, "Choose one." So,
1: <laughs> you, <laughs> so said, I chose you said you said that perfectly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I chose one, and that he chose one, and that he got out the bottle of schnapps, and then we became friends.
1: Oh, what a what a magnificent story! Um, you know, I I remember when he came um, to the library. I invited him together with Norman Mailer, and it was an incredible night because Mailer. This was a moment, a uh, contested moment for for Grass. You will recall where certain revelations came out about his late adolescence, when he was 17 or 18. I don't know if you call that late adolescence, but he had um, been been uh, in some way compromised by having... Uh, it's, uh, it's not clear w- what relationship he had to to the regime in place then, to the Third Reich. I can't quite recall exact the exact details.
0: ...drafted into the Waffen-SS in the last... Right. Uh, I don't think he ever fired a shot in anger.
1: I don't think he did. and, and he, At that I th-
0: point, you know, the German, the German army was grabbing anybody it could get because it was in a state of disarray and about to lose.
1: And you know, melas point, mela came incredibly much to the defense of Grass and he said, well, you know, when I... When I uh, uh, sh- did he shoot his second wife, or he did something terrible to his second wife? He said, do it's you think... Not, not a knife do, do do you think that i i i i spoke about it to freely to everybody of course not so he he came to his defense in that context which was extraordinary and they they understood each other quite profoundly on on stage it was a a great moment but you know what one of the things that strikes me is what happens when a book does and what happens when a book doesn't touch you at a certain point and which books do we remain faithful to um, over time and which do disappoint us later on that we loved once upon a time
0: yeah well I mean one of the writers I've sort of little bit moved away from is a writer enormously attractive to me as a young reader was Thomas Pynchon and I read sort of Read and reread *V* and *The Crying of Lot 49* and *Gravity's Rainbow*, and thought they were, you know, extraordinary and wonderful and full of meaning for me. And um, and now I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I put it like this: I don't quite have the same reverence for them that I had then.